Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir. This is our weekly conversation and podcast about food, about passion, and about making a difference and changing the world. And we've got two great guests. One is Kevin Concanon, who uh, most recently has been Undersecretary for Food and Nutrition at the United States Department of Agriculture, overseeing basically what we eat and particularly making sure that for those for whom accessibility to healthy and nutritious food is a challenge, that they have access to it. He's probably one of the finest public servants that this country has or has ever had and has a diversity of experience. And uh, we're just thrilled to have you here, Kevin. I'm thrilled to be here. We've got one of the finest chefs in the country, if not the world, you Atchison from, are you talking to us from Atlanta today, you? I am in Atlanta today. Good. Well, you've got restaurants in Athens, Georgia, in Atlanta. I was in a taxi today with a colleague of mine who had just eaten at your restaurant, Empire. She said it was one of the best meals she had literally ever had in her entire life. So, Well, good. Thanks. We aim to please. Th- thanks for being with us. You also recently, within the last year, spoke to our whole staff and inspired literally everybody in the room with his commitment, not just to being a great and creative chef but to what he's doing for the community. And particularly, you, you're the founder of something called Seed Life Skills. Um, and so it turns out that you and Kevin have a lot in common in terms of caring about where food comes and how people learn about that. So uh, thrilled to have this conversation. Uh, I want to start with you, Hugh, um, since you're uh, not at the table with us, but you're coming to us from uh, Atlanta. And I want to just uh, make sure our listeners understand how you became who you are in the first place and particularly where your love of food and your passion for food came from and how you became a great chef. Well, I I come from a really academic family and was raised by a uh, single father economist and I've got three older sisters and um, black sheep of an academic family. So luckily I learned how to cook. (laughs) Um, And, you know, you can only go so far in life eating frozen fish sticks and canned yellow wax beans in Ottawa. Uh, delivered by a big-hearted economist who really never learned to cook. Um, So I started working when I was really young, and it gave me a lot of uh, sense of belonging and a place where I could really excel. And You started uh, working in a restaurant? I started working in a restaurant when I was 14 and 15, So um, and worked a lot of different restaurants and went to college for a couple of years and dropped out and realized that um, food was really my my aspiration in life. And... uh, and, you know, codifying what a chef was uh, was ever-changing at that t- time. And uh, I think that uh, we can be chefs and uh, academics at the same time and really revel in food history and then also the the food systems that we all uh, have to deal with every day regardless of who we are. Um, and that's always been intriguing to me and in, in, in how we empower communities through food action and, and food activism. And in your case, you was it uh... – was it nature or nurture in terms of you developing your skills as a chef? Was there a point at which you realized or somebody said to you, you know, man, you've got talent. You've got to do something with this? Yeah, I mean, that was really young. I mean, I, I, I was not very uh, adept at school, even though, you know, we've got three professors in the family and lots of PhDs and things like that. My older sisters are all gifted academically, and I just did, never really – that wasn't the love of my life, and it's not where I really felt I belonged. So working in kitchens, even at 15, and uh, 
being that slot on the schedule that everybody was happy when I showed up because I would work really hard and uh, assist them and be a member of a team and really advance the notion of uh, being professional even at a really young age. And and that really impacted me because it, it really gave me a place to belong and, and to uh, to learn. And was there, a, was there a light bulb moment where you said, uh, gosh, I'm, I'm not just going to work on a restaurant. I'm going to have my own restaurant someday. I think that's that's the hope and dream when you're a young chef, but it's it's a long, arduous path usually. And uh, I cobbled together enough money to open my first restaurant in 2000 in, in Athens after working in fine dining in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, but I opened up my first restaurant with $40,000 that I'd saved up and uh, helped from my father a little bit. He's utterly middle class, but really uh, benevolent and all these things. And uh and that that was it. But yeah, I mean, I can remember working at a really fine French restaurant in Hull, Quebec, uh, uh, looking at the possibility of doing it and, and dreaming about the idea of running your own show and uh, and and doing it. But you know, it was never a aspiration that that was going to be the natural path. I mean, uh, it just it all kind of came to fruition. Uh, and Kevin Concanon, I think you went to school in Canada as well. Am I correct? I did indeed. Yeah, Nova Scotia, Saint Francis Xavier. Yeah. Okay. And studied what? Studied sociology as an undergrad, and then I went to graduate school in social work. So uh, that's what I've done right right out the front door. I worked with kids initially, but ended up in uh, state government in Maine without uh, indi- uh, without intending uh, to stay there forever. I took a leave from a not-for-profit agency to oversee a study, and then I got hooked on g- the ability of government to actually make a difference in people's lives. So... I ended up working in the mental health system. I had an older sibling who had serious mental health problems that developed when he was a college student, not uncommon. And uh, I saw that you could actually make a difference uh, in in the lives of people. And But uh, I ended up overseeing SNAP or food stamps or WIC, uh, the Women, Infants, and Children's Program, or emergency foods, among others. And then when I came uh, federally... Uh, I got more directly involved in school meals. That was new to me, but uh, uh, not not a difficult uh, transition to it. So, Kevin, your first transition was really from mental health services to a broader range of human and social services, and you directed that at the state level in Maine and then got asked to do it in Oregon. Well, Oregon had this ethic of uh, if nobody else has tried it, we'd like to try it. They loved uh, being different in a, in a constructive way. And uh, I found that really encouraging, energizing to say, what else could we do around health care, around uh, hunger issues? I can recall when uh, Secretary Espy came out there, he was chairing, he was still in Congress at the That's time. Okay. He chaired a hunger uh, commission or caucus in the Congress but but it was a great place from the point of view of wanting to really respond to the state's issues. And it's, uh, it's a state that on the eastern side is uh, very conservative. On the western side of the state, it's, it's very liberal. I can recall I, I had uh, in my, my headquarters building, we had a, a, a display for each, each season of the year. We had a large atrium. And I had a committee come to me one year, and they said, by the way, we've decided we're not going to have Christmas trees in the atrium this year. I said, really? And they said, yeah, no, a lot of people find them offensive. And I said, wait a minute. 
Oregon is one of the biggest producers of Christmas trees in (laughs) the Western world. Yeah, Yeah. Do you want to have us blown up, you know, here? No. But it was an example of, you know, a very process-oriented state, very liberal, as I say, on the the Western side, but a state that really cares about people. And uh, I went out there because the state institutions were struggling at the time and went out there initially as, as the mental health director, and within a period of months, anyway, I got asked to take on the, the whole system, and it was it was a great experience. I read somewhere that um, while you were a mental health director, the governor said, uh, you know, maybe this is a little bit apocryphal, but he said, uh, walk down the hall with me. We're about to announce the new commissioner of, of uh, state and human health and services. Yes, and, yeah. And no, it turned out to be you. Yeah, no. It, <laughs> it, well, I very I was went out there in uh, April, and uh, the state had lost accreditation of its state institutions. It was really in trouble. So I remember coming back here to meet with then Mark Hatfield and Bob Packwood, the two U.S. senators from Oregon, with Governor Goldschmidt, and Within a period of months, we got the the institutions back online. And over the course of the summer, the governor would call me down and we'd have lunch at Willamette University, which is a college right behind the state house. And we'd just chat about the different world. He'd ask me, well, this particular day, the day after uh, uh, Labor Day, I got asked to come down. And I thought I was going down to have lunch with him. And that's when he said, Hey, take a walk. We're going downstairs to the press room. I had been down there a couple of times in the summer. I said, what's on there today? He said, well, we're announcing the new director of the Department of Human Services. And I said, who is it? He said, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so you got thrown into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. yeah, and I still have a video at home of the 6 o'clock news where they said when Concan was asked what plans he had for the department, he said, well, I don't have any yet. I just found out That's about right. this. <laughs> That's very <laughs> but, but I was there for, you know, for eight years. It, yeah. was, it was a great, great place to live. Yeah. You, uh, Atchison, I want to hear about two things. One is about your restaurants, and I'd love you to just talk about, um, you know, what you try to create at your restaurant. Were, were you the sous chef at Gary Danko, Hugh? Did I... I right. was when they opened. Yeah. What, what year was that? Because um, I, because my wife. That was ninety nine. Okay, so my wife and I were courting in nineteen eighty eight and ninety nine, and her favorite place for me to take her was Gary Danko. You may have cooked for us, so. Mm. But yeah, I started uh, after Gary Danko. I came back to uh, Athens, Georgia, where my wife and I uh, had lived for two years when she was doing her masters, and opened up five and ten. And uh, coming from years of fine dining, I just wanted to do a really good professional community restaurant. I think if I opened a really fancy restaurant like a Gary Danko in Athens, Georgia, I would have lasted about five days. Um, so this so was a much more... community uh, restaurant, yeah, describe what that's like. Yeah, a restaurant that is wide spectrum for a number of people, for, uh, allowing a lot of different types of people from different economic backgrounds the ability to go there. It wasn't, you know, there'd be wines by the glass that are $5 and be wines by the bottle that are 500 and everything in between. And and that allowed us to appeal to a greater amount of people on a more regular basis. And, uh, and so we started that with really not much money at all. We started a little bit slow and then started to get a lot of reviews and we got a lot of really good reviews. And then I won Best New Chef from Food and Wine Magazine and that kind of uh, solidified things and then started getting beard awards and things like that. And um, during that time, I opened up another Mediterranean restaurant in Athens, Georgia called The National. Uh, one of my guys who had worked for me for a long time, who actually used to work for um, Nathan Deal when Nathan was a uh, House of Reps guy in D.C. and 
Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Dale was in uh, Nathan's office uh, at that point in time and came back and uh, he worked at five and ten for a long time and very well traveled young guy and we uh, we opened up the national together so that was an ode to sort of southern Spain and North African food. And then opened up Empire State South about eight years ago uh, in Midtown Atlanta, and have since opened up a couple of coffee shops. And but really, you know, all the restaurants have a mandate to um, source from the locality, which is really easy in Georgia because there are a lot of local farms, um, and mm-hmm. give back to the communities from which they uh, they reside in in a, in a number of different ways. Just by hospitality and the true nature of what a restaurant should be, which is a place of nurture and and calm and a a place to weather a storm of any type. Uh, But then also a lot of engagement with community um, in in different ways of whether it's helping out at schools and uh, or changing class curriculums or whatever it may be to to, to really. uh, But I I think I'd do that if I was a dentist as well. I just happen to be in food. So the focus can be uh, uh, on nourishment. That's kind of an ethic, though, that you've created at the restaurants. Yeah, they've, they've always given back in a lot of ways. Um, but really, uh, after going to the initial, the James Deere uh, Foundation started their culinary boot camps a number of years ago. And really, that taught us with um, help from the Pew Charitable Trust and uh, a, a number of people around um, that sort of food activism and food uh, issues sector uh, allowed us to learn how to really start up a 501c3 and and use what we knew to change things. So our focus wasn't on uh, – there's always been a lot of focus on changing the meals within schools and unfortunately we've uh, just lost some traction on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I, I, I saw a lot of focus on that but I wanted to, to focus in on something that I saw was uh, an attrition in actual skills, societal skills to feed yourself and mm-hmm. to and the, and so I grasped onto the idea of empowering a home back class which have fallen off the radar and become family and consumer sciences classes and have been dumped by a lot of curriculums or school systems nationwide mm-hmm. but ours was still in existence so the, the superintendent of schools who at that point in time was an amazing amazing guy uh, brought me in and asked me to redo the curriculum and so it was about for the whole school for, system, for the whole school system in Athens, Clark County. So that's four middle schools, mm-hmm. and uh, it'd be grade six, seven, eight. And so that was seed life skills, and really it was meant to um, atomize down the content of a curriculum to s- simple technical skills that would provide nourishment later in life for someone who is in hard times. So if you can teach every kid how to make a vinaigrette, and poach an egg, and roast a chicken then it has so much impact on so many things. Um, and it's just meant to empower every kid of every color or creed to be able to, at 1920, remark back on things they learned when they're you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and say, I can do this. I got this. Um, I can, for $5, I can put two meals on the table for four people and, and get it done. Hugh, we want to understand more about the economics. Well, it's just about – it's not about following recipes per se. It's about giving people the building blocks to cook food in an economically viable way. I always break it down to a Lego set and each technique in, in food is a Lego block. I just have more 
Lego than most people. <laughs> so, but what if we, if a, if a kid knows how to make vinaigrette and you've got those basic ingredients to that, so you've got an oil and an acid in, in vinegar and then you've got salt and pepper and some mustard. Those are all things that typically would be in a fridge anyhow. But, and then you go to the store and for $5, you're going to buy, um, you know, a small bag of rice that's going to feed 12 people total because rice expands and doesn't take much. And then you're going to buy um, a pound of tofu and you're going to buy um, two carrots and some green beans are on special or it's summer and the yellow squash is 39 cents a pound, which is what it is around here. And you're adapting because you understand the nuances of building a meal through this building block technique method. And that's where really the value comes in on. It's also from cross-utility of leftovers and how we um, roll those things without wasting them within to, into the meals that we're serving. Mm -hmm. So if I can fry an egg and put it over rice with um, some crisped off tofu and some seared yellow squash and some nutritional yeast and some soy sauce. You've got a meal that's going to take you um, the length of time that's going to take to make rice, which is about 17 minutes. Um, and then, but you've got this efficacy of this meal that is so economized yet so healthy and so efficient. But those are the, the ways we teach America how to cook again is concentrate on the Lego blocks and giving each human, if every human in this country was raised to have 12 attributes and 12 blocks of cooking that they could understand and memorize like riding a bike, think about the impact we have on everything, on health, on the ability of people to grasp themselves out of poverty, uh, to fend for themselves, to not to just go and poison their bodies with Happy Meals all the time, that, that the economy... Um, the economization of food becomes much more rational, that it's no longer convenience items that are, we're pulled to because we perceive them to be value. It's like uh, paying for crumbled feta. Kevin, Who doesn't know what a crumbled feta? If we'd had this conversation 10 years ago, you might have uh, talked Hugh into being at the USDA with you. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, no. <laughs> We've, we have gone a little bit backwards in terms of some of the regulations <laughs> that the Trump administration has put in place uh, in terms of quality of school meals. Yes, indeed, on on three fronts, and it's a shame, really. I think it's just pure politics. It was totally unnecessary because the overwhelming majority of schools were, in fact, meeting these standards. Remember, the the law we're talking about was passed in 2010, so we've had at least seven years, six years uh, at a minimum of implementing these standards. And, and the standards had to do with how much salt, how much sugar, that type, and, how much whole grain, that yes, type Yes, it's, it's the three that have been weakened in this were because the, the sodium standard, most of us consume too much sodium every day, even if you don't pick up a salt shaker, because we eat too many processed foods. So the goal is a 10-year goal. It's a very modest goal. Most schools were meeting the goal that doesn't even kick in until 2019, that is next July, but but this administration, the, the current secretary, two years ago or in May of uh, 2017, when he when his first week in office, came out to a school system in Northern Virginia and said, you know, we're going to weaken these, and it's taken that time to change the regulations. So the sodium so standards were those is because setback. of Secretary Purdue or Secretary Secretary DeVos? DeVos. No, no, Secretary Purdue, Purdue. Yep. who was Secretary okay. Purdue. 
the ag secretary, his very first yeah. week there, uh, which is to me showed, you know, this is just politics. So it was the sodium standard, the whole grain standard, again, which which most schools, I've been in many, many schools, and for the fir- if they went from just white, you know, the plain old white bread to a whole grain bread without phasing it in, yes, kids would react to that. But most schools across the country had started gradually introducing whole grains into their pizza dough or their whatever foods uh, they they propose. So there's no need to change that whole grain standard. The third, they changed the uh, the the fat content standard in milk. Milk, uh, a compromise was made when we were there to say, okay, we're not going to outlaw flavored milk because if you just have white milk pure, then the consumption drops way down. The L.A. schools tried that and saw milk consumption just about, you know, that, you know, totally disappeared or so close you to. You got to have chocolate milk. So, so you got to <laughs> have it, but the compromise was okay. Limit the amount of sugar, how many, you know, how, how much sugar they can have in it, but also uh, have it non-fat milk. And uh, that's a change they made. So they changed on the whole grains, the sodium standard, and uh, the uh, fat content in milk. Each one of those really unnecessary because no schools were being penalized if they were struggling with it. We said, we can work with you. Uh, but it was a concession. It was a concession. political statement. It was a political statement, purely, purely. And really a shame because we shouldn't be we shouldn't be making points no more than at the border with, with children. You know, it, it just was unnecessary. But now our hope is, and we certainly, groups like uh, No Kid Hungry or Food Corps or Wholesome Wave and others will continue to work with schools to... Yep. to stay the course on healthy meals because we all know it's not just getting calories to kids. It's uh, it's the healthy foods and socializing kids to eat healthy, like those kids in Athens. I mean, they're, they're, they're coming out of middle school with more than, you know, a base understanding of algebra. They're, they're going to have, uh, you know, a, a quality of life if they stay that course that uh, that they can look back and say the start of when they were you know, 12 or 13 years of age. Yeah. And in the scheme of things, I guess, for at least for those of us who have been in Washington for a long time or too long, um, not unusual to see a step forward, half a step back, a right. step forward, right. half a step right. back. It's, it's it's the way of our political system. But ultimately, we do cre- we do keep moving the ball forward and yeah. progressing. And, and again, I'd, I'd even go back to, to well, this week, you know, the, I, I feel so positive about the fact the Farm Bill prevailed it didn't add a lot of new things. There are a few new things in it on the plus side, but it did not go down the road of, of those who would go yeah, backwards. It could have so been really I, bad. Oh, yeah. You know, I think I saw firsthand some of your influence. I was at a middle school in Athens, Georgia, and at the time they were they had kids, this is in the summertime, where kids were learning to not only grow food but to prepare food, uh, some of which or much of which they had grown, and they were feeding it to seniors, like, you know, several days a week. And uh, that school, That is one of the most successful see, programs. It's, yeah, a, this it's, is a, when, it's yeah. a restaurant. They open up a restaurant every Thursday, pulling yes, from all the it. garden, Kevin, and it's a summer when, camp. When you were undersecretary? When I was undersecretary. You went I, to visit the school? I went to visit. I and the philosophy the philosophy of the, the, the principal of that school, I thought, wow, if we could take this principal and plant him across the country because he he really 
he had inculcated in these kids, because we listen to the kids talk about their experience, because it was all volunteer. They would come in mornings, all these kids, to be prepared for uh, Thursdays or whatever day of the week they did this feeding. But it was just so impressive that they had inculcated these, the knowledge and the values in these middle school kids, and they were really committed. It was just wonderful to see it. Yeah, Billy, they, they, these kids, we, we would help them craft the menu, but then they had to do it all, and uh, some people from my restaurants would help oversee a little bit, um, but they would do it all. They would do full service. They yeah. would a, a three-course meal that was generally sourced from the garden or with donations from a couple of distributors I work with at our local farms, and uh, they would do the full setting of the tables. They would greet customers. They would seat the customers. They would do, do a full service. Service. These are your kids are 11, 12, 13 years yeah. old. Yep. And they it was a, a volunteer camp that they did. So during the week, they'd be prepping towards this meal and then execute it. And really, um, yeah, the principal there, that's Clark Middle School in Athens, Georgia, which is really award-winning middle school. And that's Tad McMillan, who's the amazing, solid disciplinarian of a principal. But he is so smart and so progressive thinking. But everything happens on time at that school regardless. Yeah. I mean, it's just so buttoned up. And it's such an amazing mixed array of kids in that community. Every mm-hmm. Tell us about it. How, old are, how old are they? I mean, it's grade six, seven, eight as a middle school. Okay. So my, both my daughters went there um, to that school and, and have had a great experience there. Um, but the, there's one guy who came on board um, as a food core uh, slot from, the fe- from federal money and was installed in that school a number of years ago named Wick Pritchard. And Wick really started one of the largest gardens I've ever seen at a mm-hmm. school. And one of the big malaises of starting gardens in schools is that we're not teaching them how to utilize that crop within the school or how to bounty from that. So they they have a small farmer's market at the school where they sell product from there. But they also do this restaurant program in, as you know, Billy, the most difficult time of the year, which is summer when school breaks. For a lot of kids, it's a difficult time for nourishment. It's a difficult time for continuation of, of what the school has become, which is the main center of their lives. So this continues. And Wick uh, started this restaurant program, and I assisted him in the first few years. And it's it's been such a resounding success. People go there and they're like, this is the best lunch in Athens. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just hilariously wonderful and beautiful to go there and see it in what, action. What do they call the program? So, it's basically restaurant camp. Restaurant um, camp. I forget okay. exactly what, what Wick calls it, but Wick is a, uh, an amazing human and they found the money to pay him yearly. And he's out there, you know, working with kids in the garden every day and and we're split between having family consumer sciences, which is my curriculum, which is installed there. Uh, and then the other half of the year, the kids flip to ag science. So we're still an agricultural rich area. Um, so that impact. But they work tangentially, the two classes. And and that really has pulled a lot of uh, amazing kids to want to uh, do this during the summer. A very large garden, as I recall, but they had they had chickens, they had goats. They had goats. One of the yeah. kids said, Horrible. "You know, stay away from that goat. He's mean." You know, they <laughs> they, they gotta them. have the personalities. <laughs> of the, but but it was it was so impressive because the principal incorporated into to me it was one of the best examples I've seen because I I used to preach this myself that you could use food and nutrition, you could apply it into mathematics, you could bring it into the science programs, you could you know, incorporate in a variety of ways. But he really preached character. This this principal was just a very gifted 
and the kids were so committed that way too. It was a great, it was a great visit. Yeah. Well, if you'd have told me this morning uh, on on my way here that uh, you, Kevin Concano, <laughs> had spent time in the school that you oh, Atchison's yeah. daughters went oh, yeah. to and seen this program, I wouldn't have believed yeah. it. Incredible. Um, I want to ask both of you about the farm bill, which just passed Congress uh, yesterday, as yeah. we're speaking of yeah. it on December twelfth. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of, initially there was a lot of concern yeah. that uh, there were some very bad things in the farm bill that would uh, take a lot of people uh, and reduce their or eliminate their food stamp, their SNAP uh, benefits. Um, tell us about the consequences of that. And uh, uh, Kevin, I'd love you to address it first because it's an area of your expertise. But then you, I really also want to get your sense from the point of view of somebody uh, who's works with a lot of other chefs to uh, influence policy, uh, how you feel about it as well. Well, as you know, uh, uh, more than 40 million people each day, this very day, more than 40 million people across the U.S. I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but there are probably 42, 43 million people, half of whom are children, depend upon the SNAP or the food stamp program. Big number. So it's really hugely important. And uh, there was a move, especially on the House side, and supported or promoted by the White House as well, to stiffen further already existing work requirements. Most people who can work, uh, who are benefiting from the food stamp program, do do so. And when I was uh, a federal person, uh, I often brought it up to people that you may not realize that more than 40 percent of the individuals who receive SNAP benefits across the country live in a household in which at least one of the parents, if their parents are adults, are currently working in the workforce. So it's not, they don't realize that in many cases it's supplementing, you know, uh, income uh, for households. But there was a move really to, uh, I think, make it more difficult and reflecting more conservative, a few conservative governors and conservative House members especially, I am really thrilled with the fact that the Senate, which has more bipartisanship, at least in the agriculture world, resisted that from the outset, said we're not going there. So Senator Roberts of Kansas and Stabenow of uh, Michigan and their colleagues just said- Democrat and a Republican worked together on this. Worked together on it and just said, uh, no, we're not going there. So- to me, I'm as pleased with the farm bill for what is not in it, some of these poison pills, so to speak, that were really intended to just just harm people. And there are a few additional bright spots. There are some additional funding there for uh, growing healthy foods in uh, uh, local farms across the country. And as you, as you know, the farm bill, one criticism of it is that even the, the, the nomenclature, the words that are used in it, they refer to as uh, commodities are, you know, rice and peanuts and uh, corn and soybeans. But other foods, healthy foods, typically are referred to as specialty crops. <laughs> and to me, that's very telling. Just right. that nomenclature. Right. It's like, wait a minute, lettuce is a specialty crop? <laughs> so uh, I, I'm pleased with what we achieved. And I, I think, again, that's especially a credit to the on the Senate side. Uh and on the House side, at least the, the Democrats in the House refused to, Colin Peterson refused to fold uh, on, you know, some of those more punitive elements that they were pushing. And I know even last night I was at, at some people with one of your colleagues, uh, Lisa Davis, mm-hmm. 
uh, who mention uh, uh, chefs. Some 74 of these major, perhaps our, you know, our colleague here was one of the signers, sent a letter to, to the leadership urging them, you know, to stay the course on not harming people uh, in the SNAP program. So now we have a framework for the next five years, and uh, at least on the on the laws that underpin all of this, uh, I think we're in much better shape than I feared we would be a year ago. The Washington Post headline today was about uh, an $867 billion farm bill passing. So, I mean, the size of this, right, the yes. scope of this is almost unimaginable. Uh, Hugh, this is something that uh, many chefs get involved in in terms of trying to influence policy, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it is funny occupationally why chefs are often very engaged um, in, in progressive uh, politics, progressive pushes. But people like Tom Colicchio and, um, and a number of others have always been very, very outspoken. And particularly, uh, and, and other groups like Wholesome Wave, but also a lot of mm-hmm. Nook and Hungry, has really supported chefs coming on board. Um, and hopefully we can get uh, the attention of some people who really want to listen to us. But there's there's there are really good things in the farm bill often, and and there's the, my job when I am lobbying on the hill is often to talk to you know the Buddy Carters of the world who are very GOP uh, House of Reps uh, people in South Georgia, but the the economics of agriculture are really important to them, so they don't want to be hindered in that. So some of the right-wing initiatives that are kind of going into these things with work requirements and all this are really just – that's not what needs to be focused on. I'm really glad the Senate final passage of it didn't include that stuff or more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there is a sort of bipartisan look at agriculture that we can really look at. But yeah, the whole specialty crop thing is silly. Uh, specialty crops are things like – kohlrabi, but there shouldn't be things like carrots or um, an onion. Um, You know, good consumables should be given um, just as much of a break as corn that's raised for ethanol production. Um, So, yeah, the way we look at it and just the fact that everything, uh, that, that WIC and SNAP become to half of society, these, these ugly terms, yet they're so beneficial and level the playing field for so many Americans. I mean, Americans aren't on SNAP for their entire lives. This right. is a supplemental program to pull them out of poverty. These are often very, very hardworking American families who are just trying to put healthy food on their table. And if, 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 we, if we've lost the will to help wherever we can from a government standpoint, everybody within society, then I question where we go. Um, so I think the Farm Bill just has has so many instances where it's it's the last gasp of helpful society, mm-hmm. and uh, all the other things have have been pulled away as we've, hey. you know, gotten rid of the welfare state and everything like that. And then we look at Canada and and sometimes weep with uh, endearment over some of those social systems that they still have. Right. Um, so it's 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 an interesting interesting time in the world in which we live. And it seems like you're both saying that there's a lot of mythology, a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of uh, kind of fake news that applies to the, you know, to, to these programs that people depend on. Oh, absolutely. But fake news wins these days, unfortunately, in a lot of arenas. And, you know, they, they, um, that when you come to WIC and SNAP fraud, you're talking about it's about the same thing as, as with the voting fraud. It's 
it's essentially non-existent in, right. in a lot of ways, and it's it's talked and talked and touted about a lot by a certain segment of society. But then, at the same time that they're talking about voter fraud, then the largest case of it we have is within the GOP in North Carolina. So it's you know, <laughs> it's it's a little difficult, and uh, mm-hmm. it's got a lot of heads. This monster. So this must have been maddening to you, Kevin, when you were uh, undersecretary oh. uh, administering these programs and uh, having to combat these misunderstandings. Oh, well, I, I, I rem- remember a hearing with uh, Congressman Issa from. Uh, he's still there, but his his term is just about over. From. Uh, San Diego was chair of the Oversight Committee, and he held a hearing. There are roughly 265,000 stores that are authorized uh, to process SNAP food stamp benefits in the U.S., 265,000. And there's a requirement that if you have trafficked seriously in it, you're out of the program for a lifetime, period, not just for three or four years, but forever. Well, they did extensive uh searching for about five months, and they found 12 stores. This is out of 265,000. 12. 12 that had been, had been readmitted, you know, by either changing their name or, or doing something. And and so he insisted on holding a hearing. Well, he made his millions. He's a millionaire by the, the metal pipe that you put on a steering wheel of a car, you know, to, I forget what they call it, but... If you attach it to the steering wheel, it, it's, it, its purpose is to prevent people from stealing your car. Right. It locks so, the, uh, Yeah. So yeah. I was tempted during the during when we were oh, getting the ready. the red one with the lock thing. Yeah, yes, yeah, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. I was tempted when we were getting ready for the hearing to bring one of them with me and then just bring it up, you know, on, when the cameras say, well, you know, even a few of these people's cars get right. stolen. But I was dissuaded, <laughs> I think, properly from doing that. It would that. have been a dramatic yeah. moment. Yeah, no, no, it would have been. But, but that's funny. But that that's the same thing that the, yeah. his riches are made on fear mongering that your car is going to get stolen, yes. and the actual reality of it is not really there. Oh, in in yeah. this case, there's no there's no fraud in the. I, mean, I, I said, you know, the, the best medical centers in the country, the Mass General Hospital or or Johns Hopkins or or any place else, would love to have a success rate. Uh, uh, at the at the rate that could be found in this, but anyway, it was just part of that effort to try to amplify or to demonize uh, the programs that are helping people. Yep. Yep. And uh, 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 as you mentioned, you know, the safety net has really been frayed, unfortunately, over the last twenty years. And SNAP is now one of the major sources. I sat in on a meeting with a whole series of economists. Uh, public economists, two of the past secretaries of of labor, and they, when they were reflecting back on the downturn here in 2009-2010, they said by far the most effective immediate response was in the enhanced SNAP benefits that went out across the country Mm -hmm. because they're very portable. They go into small communities as well as large ones. You know, they're not. And uh, it's that EBT, that electronic card, has portability. Electronic benefit yeah, transfer card. Yeah. So, so it really made a difference, not only individually, obviously, in the lives of people, but it made a difference in the, in the communities. I used to point this out to folks that for every dollar in, in, uh, spent in the SNAP program, it, economists have said, you know, point out that it creates about $1.74, $1.78 in the multiplier effect, the the truck driver that brings that food to the store, yep. the store so workers, all the economic et cetera. Ripples. 
And uh, I remember walking in a store at HEB, a food chain down in Texas, mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with one of the regional managers, and he pointed out hourly people going by, the staffers, and he said, we wouldn't have as many hourly people here if we didn't have SNAP. This is in San Antonio. If we didn't have SNAP benefits available mm-hmm. to low-income households. So it has a pervasive positive effect not only again on the lives of people but on on communities and so it's a shame that fake news or tilted stilted news tends to try to demonize it or disparage it in various ways when really it's working well so again hats off to the senate for staying the course yep. here on the farm bill well, thanks. yeah. Luckily, I mean, the, the demonization of wordplay is always funny, but food stamps has become a sort of uh, a bad word. Right. Um, but they haven't been able to do that with SNAP and WIC because they don't understand the acronyms. Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. Um, but it's the same thing with uh, yeah. with Ob- Obamacare. You know, you, you mm-hmm. talk to people who uh, believe in the Affordable Care Act but hate Obamacare, and they don't realize that they're the same thing. Right. Right. Um, but that this is that, that's just all propaganda machine that we're, we're having to deal with, you know. I mean, we're still in a state in America where we have to do uh, funding drives for canned goods or local schools in Athens, Georgia. Yep. We've got thirty-seven percent endemic poverty rate. Yep. Um, the the funding drives ask for cans to be pop-top cans so kids can feed themselves on the weekend, which is perhaps the saddest request I've ever seen on a funding drive mm-hmm. um, so they can feed themselves cold um, SpaghettiOs out of uh-huh. a can. Um, so I just – I don't understand how – I think that, uh, Billy, what you've done uh, with No Kid Hungry uh, is is the, the best response to this but uh, – to this problem which is – that we no longer believe that um, all of us refuse to all unifyingly, uh, unifyingly believe that the best natural resource we have is this next generation. Yes. These kids all deserve an equal chance mm-hmm. within the most prosperous nation on earth to excel and that we hinder them in every ways. And as we've lost that social safety net, we've ripped money away from the schools yet required schools to, to become daycares, sources of breakfast, lunch, and dinner now, portable meals taken home on the weekends, the psychologists, the mental health um, uh, first responders within uh, within society. And these are all public schools that have been ripped of funding. So at every level, it just it's amazing to me that uh, we refuse to have the compassion um, for the greatest natural resource that we we have. No, oh, I think you put your finger on it, you. And one of the things that I uh, constantly try and get across is whether or not you even have a an interest or a, a you know a passion as the three of us do for uh, childhood hunger and 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 the issues around that. Uh, regardless of that, basically every major challenge this country faces, uh, the solutions are going to be multi-generational, whether it's poverty or climate change or mm-hmm. anything else. If we don't invest in this next generation, starting in the most you know fundamental way in terms of making sure they're fed and they're healthy, mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have a heck of a time solving these even larger, more complicated problems. So uh, thank you both for being the champions uh, that you've been. Uh, our hour has flown by, but I, I want to make sure that uh, we find out what is kind of in the future for each of you before we close out here. 
Uh, Hugh, I didn't get to mention your most recent book, The Chef and the Slow Cooker. Uh, by now, you probably have another one in the works. I don't know if there's another uh, restaurant in the works, but tell us what's next for for you, Atchison. Yeah, I'm just wrapping up a book called, uh, it's all on sous vide cooking for the home. Uh, so cooking with a uh, thermal circulator in bags and wow. uh, just working on uh, expansion of some coffee shops that we do in Atlanta and just uh, a lot of consulting and raising two wonderfully empowered daughters to uh, be better humans than we've ever been. Oh, that's awesome. Um, how about you, Kevin? Well, I'm I'm down in the Washington area for the winter, and uh, I'm involved with a couple of non-profits here that are in the food world. And uh, once I go back up to Maine, I'm, I'm staying involved with the food bank up there as well as an organization that is working on school meals, school breakfast, promoting very similar to what you're doing yeah. nas- nationally. Just full plates, full yeah, potential. full plates, yep. full potential. Terrific. So uh, uh, just trying to... Again, support that that development, and I think we're going to have a, a much better climate politically there with the change in governor and the legislature. Actually, Maine kind of woke up uh, in the last election cycle, so uh, I'm looking for. In fact, I know the incoming administration uh, is more genuinely interested and committed to say, what can we do on access to health care, access to healthy meals and supporting people with uh, job skills. Good. Well, uh, it's nice to see you here in Washington. We, You and I tend to see each other more on the shuttle <laughs> up to New England that, than yeah. we do in D.C., but <laughs> right. uh, I'll look forward to that as well. So you, Atchison, thanks for being with us. Uh, really, really appreciate it. Uh, Kevin Concanon as well. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. To find our uh, previous episodes, go to addpassionandstir.com. Please rate us, review us, subscribe to this podcast. You'll get it weekly. Um, And thanks, as always, to our producer, Paul Woody, uh, for making this happen, and for Kelly Griffin uh, on the Add Passion and Stir team, and my sister Debbie Shore, and the entire team at Share Our Strength. This is Add Passion and Stir. I'm Billy Shore. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhall.